Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by the Authentic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. This week, we're bringing you the final episode in our series on the future of ag insurance, and we're pumped about it. Our journey started with learning the ins and outs of how the sector currently operates and talking to key players about where the weak points are and where technology might make the most difference. Those conversations and all the research culminated in a conversation I had with my co-founder, Matthew Pryor, where we decided to hit record as we talked through our learnings and attempted to solidify them into a thesis on the space. Two notes here before we jump in. First, if you haven't yet, before listening to today's episode, you'll want to have listened to our last episode with Damon Johnson on parametric insurance. The Insurance 101 bonus episode that we put out just before the Damon episode is also handy for understanding some of the concepts we fly through today. Second, we're going to be forming some, we think, well-informed theses in this episode. But if you think we got it wrong or we're missing something important, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll share our contact details at the end of the episode. In the meantime, we'll drop you right in where our 101 episode left off with the realization that there are a lot of layers of people and businesses in the old school ag insurance game which is definitely not digitally native. To us, that means there's probably plenty of room to use technology to improve the experience and cut down on the number of people in the middle. But it's worth understanding how the industry got this way in the first place. Here's Matthew. Traditionally, the insurance has attempted to ensure a physical good against loss or damage. And that adds two complexities. A, what is the physical good really worth and is it really there in the first place? And then the second is what kind of damage really happened to it and is that damage partial, total, and what would it cost to make the physical good again? And because we're in that world, we're in that real world and we're attempting to protect ourselves against real things, the cost of policy assessment is really high. Worse than that, the cost of policy configuration is really high and the cost of policy assessment and payout is really high. And the so, configuration is what you mean, like the first part, like the structure of the yeah, industry like, and how things yeah, get created so, and so development of the products. and Home and contents insurance, right? Like what all actually is in my house? Yes. Right? I yeah, mean, that's, how, but that's the assessment and payout part, right? Not that when you say no, construction. No, 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 because mean, what I pay, what I'm insuring against, the policy price yeah. has to be. And so they're going to say to me, we've got uh, a piano and a really expensive cello and a really expensive violin. Well, how much do I want to insure those for? And if I'm going to say 25 grand because it's my grandmother's or whatever, they're going to want me to take it to a valuer. And so that's an extreme example, but you get my point. Like I said, look, you can insure it for five grand and we don't need any further evidence. But if you, on a per individual piece of property basis, if you want to insure that individual piece of property for more than that, then we need more proof. You see where I'm going with this, which is one of our key observations is effectively when you zoom out and look at insurance, it's a really high CAC really high LTV market, right? Customer acquisition costs super high. Product price generally is, is high, has to be as a consequence. And, and the long-term value of that customer typically is high because the kind of relationship you need to build with them tends to stick. I, I understand why LTV is high because of that physical, like if it's how, let me look at your cello and look at your farm, assess the hail damage, come out and understand what assets you have that is sticky and is a, is a deep relationship. And you've already committed psychologically to share that information. And the cost of acquisition 
seems like in one world it would be low because the underwriters are just doing what they want to do. There's not a lot of like customization and tailoring. And so that would be low. But so why is it high? Because the easiest thing you could possibly do is get insurance for something that you don't even own and then claim right. that it got stolen or lost or damaged or got it. So the same lightning. thing applies when I'm configuring the policy and setting it up is I need to know that you have the cello and that it's whatever. Correct. Got it. Correct. Whether the crop really was there or the crop wasn't actually damaged or in fact you didn't put the fertilizer down and so you really couldn't afford the fertilizer so you didn't fertilize so you had a shit crop anyway and so the hail damage that was caused didn't really diminish much because you didn't have much to start with and because of this complexity right on all sides of the class of risk that we're insuring against and all that kind of thing and just the inherent complexity of both configuring selling and assessing because if i got to send people out like imagine what it's like in queensland and, and new south wales at the moment loss assessors all over the place. Yep. And so that, that's kind of our key observation, right? If we're thinking about this as a market that, that is going to be fundamentally changed with a digitally native version of all of this, then there's a whole lot of areas where digitally native products could potentially have really high impact. So the first is what is it? that we're insuring against. And if we say that obviously weather for ag is one of the big variables that you're insuring against, then the kind of, I guess, maybe the first sort of set of iterations there were, well, why not just insure against the weather risk itself? Don't necessarily- Versus the actual- versus the damage that it caused. And so you, that's where you start to think about different products and they weather index insurance, specific kind of weather event. And so- Rather than saying, I want to ensure the value of my crop, you can say, look, at this point in time, I know that if I get a frost in these two weeks, that's going to mean it's almost impossible for me, for the planting to have been successful. And yeah, the first is like different class of insurance product. Parametric insurance is, that's what that is, index-based or parametric insurance is basically saying we're moving away from what's referred to as indemnity-based. So you're indemnifying me against the the actual loss to index-based or parametric, which is to say I'm just insuring against something happening or not happening, and I get to buy the level of protection that I want. And the double advantage of that is it's a lot more binary in terms of payout and potentially then the product itself becomes a lot more configurable. And that was the really interesting area that in the very first instance is making the product much more about what a sophisticated buyer would want and, and a, more, a lot more specific. And, and if you're able to make it a lot more specific, it just set aside getting the underwriters comfortable for now. If you're able to make it a lot more specific, then it can be a lot more adaptable and responsive. The unlock codes there for why you can make it more specific or adaptable or responsive is because you've, when you move from indemnity to parametric, yeah. it's based on, you've simplified the landscape in that you don't have to go out with all these physical requirements and assess the hail totally. loss and do all these things. So yeah. you've got more margin to play with to shift elsewhere, which is basically or more, yeah, more spend. And we're saying shift it to the customer experience. Well, uh, yeah. Let's stay in the product realm for now, before we 
get into the go-to-market, but for sure in the it significantly opens up the palette as far as the sorts of products that you can put into the market and allows them to be a lot more responsive to what a sophisticated buyer would want or allows them to stack. Like I, I, I just need frost protection for these three weeks after planting. I understand the result. I'm trying to understand the driver. Yeah. <clears throat> so what is it about shifting to parametric that means you can have new products just because like you're in a different box, like you're in this box. And so what are the products in this box? Or is there like, because it's less expensive and you're using models or what is it? Yeah, I think it's technological innovation as well as product innovation. So the first is that we now have networks that measure weather across the entire globe. We we literally have networks of weather stations plus radars in satellites, et cetera, et cetera. So part of the unlock is the factory has no roof and we know the surface temperature and surface moisture and wind and weather conditions like to the level of accuracy that anybody cares about for every square foot of the globe. And that gets more true every six months than it was the six months prior. So the the first, yes, is we, we just have a different source of truth that the product can be drawn against. That's, I was trying to get to the like, why, why, is it just, it is possible to do this now? So the, the first is yes, why now? Because it's actually technologically possible. And also, so it's not just the sensing part, but the modeling part. So sometimes the sensors aren't high enough resolution. And so you now have gridded weather models that probably are a fusion of directly sensed and radar or satellite acquired and it's increasingly the case that those are both spatially and temporally high resolution and are considered to be sufficiently accurate by the underwriters to base the actual decision on. So they've done their work and said, yeah, actually this model like spits out stuff that's easily accurate enough for us to not actually need someone to go there and look at the rain gauge. So that's a technical But B, also, well, that means we used to be limited in our ability to put a product in the market because we needed assessors in that geographic area because they would have to go and visit and do the assessment. Now, when you don't physically need to assess anything, all of a sudden, geographically, you're completely freed up as well. And I think those things then have created this product innovation opportunity which is that, hmm, wow, if I don't need assessors in that area, I can all of a sudden service customers in in new markets. So it's both a new product, but also potentially new geographic and new risk opportunities. So then it's if it was an incremental improvement, it would be like, let's use the same value chain, the same um, industry structure, but improve the product set that the current people distribute. And that's like a change that's already happening in. Correct. But what we're saying, is there an opportunity when you overlay, okay, now that this technology is possible, what would the digitally native version of this supply chain look like? Totally. And it might look totally different than the supply chain does now. Correct. Yep. That's 100% the way that I have come to, to look at it, which is, yes, those two overlapping things, that that kind of product innovation, which just means you can put different products in the market. So one role sort of could be the digitization just takes place somewhere between the master general agent and the underwriter. 
So one of our market structure questions was, why wouldn't the underwriter do this anyway? Why wouldn't they just digitally extend forward and put the digital in, product in the market? What would that, like they would build software that yeah. then the retailers or brokers- Correct. White label to their customers. Yeah, maybe and, white label or, yeah, sure. So that would be one question. The second would be that the, you know, effectively the master general agent just becomes fully digital, maybe doesn't need the broker as much, goes straight to retail possibly- maybe could also more easily front a different underwriters. So, so normally as a master general agent, I, I would probably have a couple of key relationships with underwriters is, is how I've understood it. And so that I guess you would put that more in a sort of traditional business relationship space, not the kind of two-sided marketplace space. So another potential model would be it's more of a two-sided marketplace and we've got retail or, you know, broking and retailing on one side and underwriting on the other. And so another possible role that we saw there was, ah, okay, so I'm sort of like a, a matchmaker. I could potentially do product innovation on one side and I could potentially have risk matching sort of thing. It would be like maybe like realestate.com or something, right? Where you've got the kind of it's still actually largely real estate agents who are listing their properties and it's still largely people who are looking but yeah it, it's more acting like a two-sided marketplace rather than i'm not buying the houses and then selling them myself and if we were going to believe that that kind of company was the one we'd want to back we'd have to believe that both sides of the market and the mgas change because the product side has to be shifting so that they're E more easily able to put stuff into this market and want to do it digitally and that the retailers want to accept this kind of marketplace experience upstream. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, I didn't land there hard. in particular. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm just charting the yeah, yeah. Yeah, evolution yeah. of our thinking. It's one thing I'm not clear on yet, which is where product innovation happens in the conventional way, like who, who originates the innovation. And I think that would have an impact on if that were the model, then that that thinking would have an impact. I think where we end up was, okay, that's interesting, but it feels like there's more that can be disrupted here. And I think that's where you get into the observations around the CAC to LTV kind of questions. Yeah. So like uh, master general agent digitizes perhaps becoming a two-sided market. Another one yeah. is that the retailer actually presents the products to market differently. Oh, for sure. So, yes, that's absolutely the case. Yeah, okay. So we could talk about that part, which is the sort of customer experience part, I think will transform the fastest. And so specifically in that case, it's the, the retailer ends up selling a digital product and they will sell it in a similar way, but they probably don't need their insurance expert they probably need someone who can help the customer, but the customer literally goes to that, to a dashboard and says, okay, I want to insure $150,000 against not getting this many millimeters of rain in these three weeks. And so that's literally a dashboard with a bunch of sliders. The limits of where the sliders can go effectively is already fixed. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Somewhere in that broker MGA underwriter sphere somebody has agreed what the limits are to that app and the limits will be in the areas of what actual risk pricing and 
number of policies. Yeah, it's just a new presentation of the product that the underwriter designed in a more digitally native way, but it's the same product that's gone through the same channel and the retailer's like, I want to present it. I want to give the customer real or perceived more user experience and customization within parameters that someone else already defined. Yep. So lots agree with that. It's changing the way the product is sold, but not substantially the parties involved. I think save for the one big question, which is who's the product innovator here? So, okay. If we believe that it won't just be the players in the existing market digitizing, it will be new players entering the market because they're bringing new products. Sure. Yeah. That, that, yeah. One way you could look at it is you look at the box. If there's a box around MGA and broker, that yeah. kind of gets pretty blurry and how yeah. far back it pushes into underwriting and how far forward it pushes into retailing. I think both the kind of bound and internals of that box could be very blurry. And again, depending on the nature of risk and regulatory pressures, who the actual underwriter is could also get interesting, right? Because you could say, okay, if we can get regulatory approval, there are certain kinds of risk that we might be better at assessing and therefore maybe we'll just take our balance sheet or somebody else's balance sheet who's not an underwriter and strike the policies ourselves. The reason why that's tough, in particularly in ag, particularly in key markets of the US and China being the two key markets is the government is the biggest underwriter of ag policies like by a very long margin. And so it's generally thought that's a pretty hard nut to crack if you're going to choose to make your money in underwriting. But I think the things that get interesting- Break that down just to make sure I understand. So if you're in the world where we think new products will enter the market defined by new players, and we're trying to figure out what those new players end up becoming or end up looking like, one world is that they sell them to or work with existing underwriters- Another world is that they unlock new underwriters and we're saying that seems hard because the big underwriters also create the policies. And so probably having new ones seems challenging or, and the final, and it's not mutually exclusive is that they put new products into market and become more like retailers or work more with retailers because they're enabling the customer experience more or blending into how the presentation would look to customers and providing a solution to retailers. Yeah, I guess if the frame here is disruption or disintermediation of how agriculturally aligned insurance is framed, marketed, underwritten, then I think you can imagine the size and scope of that disruption being as, as big as you want. The reasons why that would seem to be very challenging is for a lot of the normal reasons, which is that the channel is already very strongly aligned. Yeah. And so trying to take, trying to bite off individual parts of it, like why yeah. would we go with you when we're risking all this other business that we do? Right. With so that's the first challenge. The second challenge is the closer you get to underwriting, the more regulated it becomes. And yeah. so you've just literally got how much work, how much prudential oversight is there on us if we choose to go in it. And third is margin contention, which could just be from existing competition. These are very big companies with very big balance sheets. And in addition to that, the amount of money you can make in those markets is often also disproportionately influenced by governments because the government 
who's a big writer of under a big underwriter of policies. And so they're just going to effectively limit the profitability because you, if, yeah. so, if, so they you that that if they think that you're taking too high a margin, they're just going to enter the market in competition against you um, yeah. and or regulate you to into reasonable profit margins. Whew, we covered a lot there already and we have a bit more to go. So let's take a bit of a halftime break here to check in on our key observations so far. First, in traditional indemnity insurance, including ag insurance, CAC is high because before a company offers a policy to a customer, they want to know that you have the thing and that it's worth what you say it's worth. It takes resources to establish that up front. Then it takes even more resources to determine that what you say has happened when you make a claim was actually caused by the event that you were insured against. It's a clunky, people-heavy, largely analog process, and the customer pays for it in a hefty premium. But because of the relationship that's built in this process, LTV is also high. Once a customer has built trust with an insurance agent, they're generally loath to start the process over. That led us to think about what fundamentally we're insuring against. If weather is the risk, then why not insure against the weather itself rather than the damage it causes? It's way easier to know the weather and so way cheaper to assess, meaning companies could redirect resources from analog processes to better products. That then opens the door to many possible products, including parametric or index, rather than indemnity-based insurance, which could end up being more adaptive, responsive, and therefore desirable to buyers. What's exciting is that the data and modeling tech to do this is largely in place today. And modern tech teams could make easy work of a possible product, say a dashboard that a farmer could use to tailor very flexible insurance offerings to their specific needs within defined bounds. Questions remain though about whether mostly new or existing players will originate these kinds of innovations because they each face different challenges. The depth of existing channels where new products might threaten old businesses is one. You also have the risk of regulation as you get closer to the underwriter, and then you have margin contention and having to go head to head with the government, not to mention all the data analysis and software development. Considering these challenges led us to ask, what would a new product look like that's more valuable to underwriters and to retailers? Here's Matthew again. I think it yeah. still feels like there are significant disintermediation, reconfiguration opportunities there. So I think two, two things become true. That the, there's margin distribution opportunity, right? By taking up more of a role or replacing a role or effectively redistributing margin, being able to earn more of the margin than the current players by replacing some subset of them or putting a better offering in. There's pros and cons there. The second is you can write a lot different policies, right? So if we said the, the current market is high CAC, high LTB, and so you can only service a certain part of the market, right? And this is increasingly becoming a problem with insurance, which is the better you understand the risk, the more expensive the policy is likely to be. Because it's if it's real and you want to get insurance against it, then it's quite likely to happen. And therefore, an insurer is going to want a decent payment for the policy if it's quite likely to happen. So the interesting thing when we push into weather is both parametric unlocks flexibility and, and therefore the potential to write cheaper, as in cheaper to strike policies, because it's just go to the website, put the dial, we'll give you the price. If you like the price, pay it. And then we know that payout is like instantaneous because either the thing did or did not happen. We can assess that digitally and you get your payout straight away, right? So that's great. We've taken so much friction out of the market and therefore potentially can write lots more policies. So potentially you've opened up the market massively 
by significantly lowering CAC, you probably lower LTV2 because it's very targeted and temporally in terms of the, both the event and the time period. The other really interesting thing is weather as a risk is just getting bigger and bigger. And both our ability to sense and model it and, and the fact that we're locked in, God help us, probably to two degrees already. And so weather is going to be a bigger risk and is going to cause more damage. And so the other part is that like costs of policies are going to go up because the kind of risks that farming in particular is going to be exposed to are going to be higher and more frequent. So on the one hand, that's a really good thing because it means the farmers can be a lot more targeted, but it, it also will mean probably that a lot of the insurance that they would otherwise like to buy will start to be quite expensive. And so I, I think that's more of a creating a really interesting challenge. We've sort of the unlock part is giving us more flexibility, more insight, more understanding, ability to be more targeted. Also, like how valuable are these products to farmers? Because it's one thing like the technology allows us to create them yep. and yep. we can have toggle your slider, buy this thing. Yep. But if you're only insuring against some percent of my actual risk or it only is some percent of my overall picture, is yep. it even worth buying? Exactly. And, and so that kind of gets us into user versus beneficiary land, which is, yes, at that individual farmer level, like the whole point of insurance is pooling, right? You can insure people because you're putting them in a pool and not everybody in that pool is going to suffer that harm. And so if everybody contributes a dollar, then, you know, those dollars can be used to compensate the much smaller number of people who actually are exposed to the harm. But when everybody is being exposed to greater weather risk, that doesn't work as well, A. And then B, yes, if you're pooling, why are you pooling? Originally, we pooled just to merge risk. But if you're downstream in a supply chain, then the way you think about pooling is very different. It's actually a supply chain risk. And so I think that's where we get into the much bigger change, which is when we think about who the beneficiary is, we then start to think about embedding a lot more. And we start to think about a completely different channel for provision of these services and where that we've started to see much more customized. So in, in a way, and we had this conversation, don't just digitally transform an industrial era product, create the digitally native product based on its greatest strengths. And so that lends you to think much more about the kind of embedded insurance that is tied to a forward supply contract, right? That is tied to the supply of a new grain variety where that new grain variety has a much shorter crop cycle, but just is particularly susceptible to abiotic stress in the first week. And so it makes sense to embed insurance with that seed for a replacement, right? Because those three weeks we've lost, so we would then have to replace it with something that's probably lower economic value, but much more hardy. And so we're not trying to insure against the loss. We're, you know, giving one 
kind of product as insurance against another, which I think that then opens up the palette just so much wider. And, and, and that's where you're really talking about digitally native because you're just completely ignoring the existing way of doing it, the non-embedded way of doing it. One argument might be now their CAC is going to be so high. It's a bit like we view the carbon project developers now. It's, yeah, you're going to make some money for a while, but your CAC is so high, you can't possibly compete with supply chain embedding for, for carbon eventually. Like you're going to get smoked. And that's a way I think that you could view the kind of embedding. And, and also why just insurance? Like that's dumb. You would put credit and insurance yeah. together and marketing. Like, so I think that digitally native also just, I think causes you to think completely differently about this, about that structure, right? You get into this challenge though, of like on the insurance side, if you're solving for lower cost, larger market, you're losing granularity, right? It's not this individual farm, it's this area against this weather event and whether that hailstorm actually hit that specific farm or not is not really the point. It's, did it occur in the area? I mean, I think though, yep, for sure. So, so here, I, I stopped at the imagining where the new degrees of freedom are. I, I, I think that, again, like from an investor point of view, then for sure, we could imagine that there's three or four kind of plausible hypotheses for new players, new products. I think on the one hand, the preferencing, the indexing for the really sophisticated buyer, he literally wants the dashboard yeah. with all the you know, yep. la, 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 yep. la, 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 and tracking costs and, and the whole deal. And I think that's pretty plausible. And I think secondarily, or maybe completely separately, there's like a stripe for risk, which is just anybody who's striking a forward contract just wants the ability to probably build out a building blocks, sell off to an underwriter and embed in their contract because it's going to be, it's more about protecting their interest, not about what the individual farmer wants to protect themselves against the risks they're exposed to. And I think both of those probably happen. The degree to which, yeah, one becomes bigger than the other probably has more to do with just there's different classes of farmers out there and some of them are price takers and some of them are, are price sort of developers. Yeah. Yeah, you get into then what are the possible business models and then what do you have to be good at or where would you come at that business from? Are you going to come at it from the modeling side and you want to be deep in the yeah. technologies and how you're totally. going to have a better product or are you going to be deep on the enterprise sales side because you're, it's much more customer facing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Do, do, do we just want to be selling the temperature or do we want to say we can put a heat index product into the market at lower cost and higher accuracy than anybody else on the planet. And so just vertically integrate to become an originator of heat index insurance. And so that's, that's exactly the, I think the next part for us, which is who would win? What are the configurations that would win? I think the, the things that we will, we would get criticized for if we just put this recording out on the internet is like, oh, these guys don't really understand how insurance works. And that's not, that's blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And, and I'm sure that's true in terms of I will have confused yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of terms together. And, and, and absolutely, if you have spent your life in underwriting, you'll say, oh, they can't possibly blah, 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 blah. And to that, I would just say, 
Netflix. The studio yeah, was, system was... is impenetrable. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't matter. I think the, the reality of what the food system is going to be exposed to is unparalleled level of weather related risk. And so for sure, the kind of climatological side of that is super, super important. And absolutely the underwriters are deep, deep on that. But I mean, in the end, that's 30 scientists or something. If I go and offer them a million dollar salary, they're, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll yank those people out of those underwriters in no time flat. Yep. And so I think that's the thing that becomes interesting, which is like how disruptive or how much of a new structure could you imagine and put together without worrying too much about how insurance currently works or you know where the market power is in insurance. I think it goes to what kind of company are you? Because you don't really have to understand as much if you're winning based on, I enable my customers to continually develop the best products, right? Yeah. There, I'm just going to index on the technology to so they have better products. But if you're a product developer, as in creating the new products, then you've got to understand the technology, but also your customers in the market who are some of which are existing insurance players, but depending on the business model, maybe you're also, it's enterprise sales to food companies or you're putting together partnerships with food companies. And so then you need a different understanding. So I think that's where it gets right. interesting. Is right. what... And if, if then you're not deemed to be selling insurance, right. especially, I think that's especially interesting in that kind of B2B sense, which is it's a, just a service. And in the end, I'm not insuring against a loss or are you like you're taking the retail part out of it. I think that's when it becomes super interesting, which is, is that... what, a, what a stripe. Yeah, yeah. Are, are they a bank? Do they need banking licenses in the some probably? Like this is who cares? But they, they just offer me everything that I need, and they. I think that's the thing that becomes really interesting in that CAC to LTV when it's fully digital, and then when we've said there's just no reason for a high CAC. I mean, that's God. I don't know if you you, you, you youngsters probably never had to actually set up like a credit card facility. But it was crazy the amount of that they would come and do an audit of your website to check the SSL certificate. And that's exactly what we're talking about. This yeah. idea that someone has to get in their truck and drive around a cornfield and literally come up with their own personal assessment of how much loss was suffered. That's just so dead. Needless to say, we will be pushing into these kinds of possible futures and continuing to track companies who are doing so. If you are one or if you know one, please reach out. But for now, we've got a working theory of what the future of ag insurance might look like and how ag tech companies might make the industry more modern, user-centric, and cost-efficient. I'm still pondering a few questions in the aftermath of this conversation, though. First, I wonder how much scope there is for data collection companies that are specifically focused on ag insurance. Or will the ag insurance world just experience spillover benefits from all the quantum leaps that data and sensing tech are making in other industries? Maybe we'll see some interesting partnerships form? Either way, having access to more information and the modeling chops to use it will be key. Next, it's pretty clear to me that as we have more climate variability and more frequent extreme weather events due to climate change, the ag insurance industry will feel the impacts. For farmers, products will be harder to get and more expensive. How strong of a driver will this be though, and how quickly for insurance companies to innovate? Will a winning strategy be to build, buy, or partner? And how much of a fundamental shift is even possible when the government has such a heavy hand in some geographies? The final area where I still have some questions is these novel products. I actually think there's a good chance that embedded insurance turns out to be a powerful tool for companies and producers alike. 
But I wonder what kind of effects these products will have for established companies and even industry structures. When farmers can buy insurance that's tied to the fungicide or biostimulant or whatever that they want to use, who will they buy it from? And when we overlay opportunities like carbon markets with these risk management tools, will we see opportunities for insurance and risk products tied to sustainability outcomes because all the data is sitting in the same place? It would certainly require some changes to business models and mindsets. So that's it for another episode of Ag Tech So What and for our three-part series on the future of ag insurance. We hope you enjoyed this peek behind the curtain of how we think and work. But if you didn't, or if you think we missed something or got something wrong, please tell us. Let us know what you think on social media by tagging us at agtechsowhat on Twitter or drop us a note directly at agtechsowhat.com. Thanks again for joining me and Matthew on this journey. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.